sermon. It's time for the sermon. <laughs> okay then. I got one of them. So, <laughs> what page, Tamara? Just asked. Um, well, here in my in my little book, it's about uh, ten or so. Um, so, I did not know what holiday this was. Although, um, as somebody pointed out, we have there's always something to be celebrating. But yesterday was Epiphany, called King's Day or Three Kings Day. Um, although we don't really know whether the Magi were kings. Um, don't tell the folks in New Orleans that because we would not want to lose king cake, which I have learned is really something to, to uh, experience. Um, it's called uh, January 6th is actually a day for gift giving in some traditions because what did the Magi do when they came to Jesus? They brought gifts. Now, in case you're wondering why that is on January 6th, well, that's the 12th day of Christmas. And some people celebrate the fact that it seems that in the story, the idea is the Magi actually did not arrive the very first night that Jesus was just born, along with the shepherds and the angels singing and everything. When Jesus was born, they saw the star and they followed it. Some say they were astrologers or astronomers. Some say they were wizards. Again, some say they were royal personages. What seems clear from the story is they are supposed to have been wise people. And it took them time to travel. So you'll see them in the creche or in our, our no rehearsal Christmas pageant, everybody together, because we like to kind of condense the story and have all the exciting elements of the story in one place. Some people, if they have a creche, they'll move the Magi a little closer each day until they arrive on the 12th day of Christmas, and then they pack it all up the next day. And in our no rehearsal Christmas pageant, we put them all here so we can see everybody together, the whole story, in the one hour that we have. So the day that, um, that the Magi come, as well as being called King's Day, is called Epiphany. Epiphany is just the Greek word for a manifestation, a surprise something that comes suddenly into view. And I thought that a good start to our year, to our 20th anniversary celebration, um, this week also being the 20th anniversary of my installation here, um, and, um, and then of course, um, a return together to discover who we've become over the last several months would be to have these mystery gifts. We give a lot of weight in this culture, and perhaps particularly in this very smart, Unitarian Universalist, highly educated Silicon Valley culture. We give a lot of weight to knowledge. Children like Peter in the story. Children are supposed to explore. Their ignorance is charming. They're just learning things like if you whack a tree with snow all over it, you know, the snow might fall right down on your head. And 
we kind of figure, well, over the years in which we grow up, we've accumulated experience, some knowledge about how the world works, how we work, how other people behave, and so we're not so surprised. And that's great. All that knowledge and experience are so useful. I, I mean, what would we do without them? We'd be creating from scratch all the time. We'd be, we'd be like little children being surprised all the time. We learn from our experience. And so knowledge is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But when I say we give a lot of weight to it, I mean, I mean weight. Like it starts to feel like a weight sometimes. Because it's seems to be difficult for us to both treasure knowledge and treasure unknowing, treasure ignorance. Um, as I say, charming in a child, not so much in an adult. But, but, but why isn't it? You know, when we, we got to the knowledge we have by being curious and by acknowledging that the world was full of things we didn't know yet, and if we give too much weight to knowledge, we start to not want to let anybody, even ourselves, know that there are things we don't know. And everybody knows that the reason children and other people who are very uh, open to learning do learn so much is because they know there's a lot they don't know. The other great thing about knowledge, of course, is that it takes us to the edge of a new unknown. And if we get too attached to knowing, then instead of looking to the unknown that our knowledge has brought us to, we just stay where we're safe. You know, we do the things we already do well. Um, we stay in a comfortable um, situation, uh, relationships we already know, friends we already know, books we've already read, and so on. And, it, and it's like the Buddha saying, you know, the teaching is a finger pointing to the moon. Look at the moon, not the finger. The knowledge has brought us this far. Look where it's pointing us. It's pointing us to somewhere we haven't been yet. And again, all that comfort and, and familiarity, they all, they're all great in their place. But if they take up so much room that we don't have room to look around and say, but what do we, now that we're at the edge that we couldn't have imagined we were at 10, 20, 40, 50 years ago, what can we discover? Well, that would be sad. I think it's been a mistake for adult to be, adulthood to be portrayed as the time of knowledge, of experience gained. That's only half the story. The other half is all of that greater vision sensing of what is unknown to us. The mountains that we can only see because we've climbed that high. Now, in a culture that treasures knowledge, we don't think much of the saying, ignorance is bliss. And I don't think we should. I mean, the idea that, oh, we're better off not knowing things, that's not usually true. But what if we turn that expression and viewed it from another angle? Ignorance is the sign that something awaits us just out of our sensing. And how exciting that is, that moment of about to discover. I'm going to put on my snowsuit and go out into the snow and see what happens when I, when I walk this way or walk this way or drag a stick or hit a 
hit a tree or try to play snowball fights with the big boys. The unexpected. Like what's in the box? That's where life gets exciting. That's why we wrap presents, because the pleasure of that moment of what's in there is one of the great pleasures of adult as well as child life. We see that in the realm of scientific discovery, artistic discovery, the things that the web telescope shows us that we only imagined or couldn't imagine are all because somebody said, but, but, but what's out there that I don't know yet, that I don't even know I don't know? That's a lot of what I got to do with my six months. Try to spend some time in places of unknowing. And that can take so many forms in addition to science and hiking and making works of art. The beginning of a friendship is a time of great unknowing. Will I even really like this person when we get to know each other better? I don't know. I'll just have to try and find out. And it's uncomfortable. But that's how we met everybody we're friends with now. The beginning of a love, of a romance. I don't know where this is going. Could be heartbreak. Could be disappointment. But one of the most exciting things in life is that adventure of not knowing. That moment of mystery. That's where we meet. Ezra Jack Keats in that story um, shows us the delight of being open to amazement, like living in an inner city and suddenly there are mountains and you can be a mountaineer in the streets. It is a co complete coincidence um, that that book and that author had a huge influence on me and are um, undoubtedly one of the reasons that, um, that I grew up into, into somebody who could not stop making art. Kat did not know that when she suggested it, um, but I told her as soon as she did. She just chose it because she thought it was a great theme for, a great, a great story for epiphany, that openness to epiphany. And there's nothing to suggest in the story that it's the first time that Peter has seen snow. He's done this stuff before, and yet it's all new. It's all worth discovering. And so he has a marvelous day full of wonders. Mary Oliver, the poet, wrote that she hoped when she died, she would be able to say, all my life, I was a bride married to amazement. I, don't, I didn't hear what she said on her deathbed, but I suspect, having read her poetry and heard her words, yes, she could say exactly that. She is a prophet of amazement. And she goes on to say, I want to say, I was the bridegroom taking the world in my arms. They're the same thing. We can't embrace the world with the joy of a newlywed if we take the attitude of, Oh yeah, I know that already. It's always in those moments of mystery, discovery, a little discomfort of being in an unknown situation, an unknown place, that we can be amazed 
It doesn't have to be big things either. It can just be a plant in our garden that we never looked at closely before. I understand that once scientists, at least physicists, seriously thought we had made all the important discoveries in that field, done and dusted, maybe some still do, doesn't appear to be the case. But even if we had, even if we'd worked out all the big questions of the workings of the universe, we would still have the mystery of each person. We can never really completely know another person. There's something about what happens in here and in here that even our words, even our music and art and dance and poetry can't quite convey. We're never, can, we can never be sure if we have expressed ourselves to a friend, even one who says, oh, I know exactly what you mean. Do they? Or are they hearing something different than what we said? And likewise, we understand the people we know best, and yet we don't know exactly what's going on in there. And then there's the other mystery going along with that. That despite that ultimate impossibility of communicating all of who we are and what we think and how we feel, we do understand each other. We do have love and friendship and communities like this. We find a way to communicate profoundly over that gulf to build the bridges of understanding even when they seem impossible. Something that gives me hope as we look across to Gaza and other places that are just tormented by the deepest kinds of misunderstandings and disagreements. That paradox of how hard it is to communicate with each other and how we seem to do it anyway, that's another one of the mysteries I explored during this time you granted me. And now we reunite to share what has happened in our absence from each other, what we've discovered, how we have changed. I think it's good to just notice this moment of unknowing, to revel in it a little, to notice the surprises between one another whenever we talk, the disappointments which tell us, oh, I expected something, I thought this was known, but in fact it was not as known to me as I thought. I think it's really good for us as Unitarian Universalists to notice that because I think UUism as a whole is a little in love with knowing, to the exclusion sometimes of unknowing. This is a tradition that was born of the Enlightenment. This is something else I've been thinking about a lot, and you'll probably hear about it a lot more from me over the next couple of years. It was a wonderful time uh, in human existence. The, the, the movement in Western Europe known as the Enlightenment, where philosophy and science and all sorts of exploration, some very destructive, but some just opened our lives to all sorts of knowing. Oh, we can, we can explore the physical world in all of these new ways and have all this new understanding. And it leads to a 
whole other understanding of our nature. This was the milieu in which this tradition began to arise. So it's no surprise that we have this marvelous, heady sense of what humans can know. We are amazing when we start to explore and we use our minds and we use our senses. But then, do we get attached again to the finger and forget that the reason that's so thrilling is because it brings us into encounter again and again with something we don't yet know and may yet may never understand you know to a child adults are the ones who know in contrast to their own ignorance of the world and then we reach adolescence and we discover hey we can be the knowers too that's pretty cool i know all this stuff that i did not understand at all just a few years ago and Believing that we know it all and are now free of ignorance is sometimes an adolescent's idea of what it means to be grown up. But to really grow up is this, to realize that there's still as much to learn as ever and that in fact, the more we know, the more we see we have yet to uncover and we'll never discover it all before we breathe our last breath so much to explore, so much of which we are still ignorant in that wonderful way. I think that Unitarian Universalism can be stuck in early adolescence sometimes. We sit on that peak of knowledge, and I'm speaking as a movement, where we are, what we, what we value as a tradition. We sit up there on that peak of knowledge, and say, wow, look at all the things I've done. And we don't embrace the whole process of wondering and being willing to face the mystery, being willing to open a box with no idea what's in there and go with it. That got us there in the first place. Because knowledge, you know, it's seductive and it's comforting. And you get tired always saying, I don't know, I don't know. But in the end, maturity means moving on to new unknowns and realizing that they'll never end. The reason I think um, I look around and see we're a little stuck is I see that we're uncomfortable with mysterious sorts of encounters, with experiences that sound mystical and that we don't have an explanation for, or with moments in worship or in conversation where we're just overcome by something that seems beyond our control, a sense of emotion, a sense of meaning, and we don't know where it's going. We're just on this great big wave. And um, as a religious tradition, we tend to step away from those moments. I, I can go back to the known. I can explain this. I can have a safer conversation. I can have a worship that I don't get lost in ecstasy. And I think part of the reason is we're afraid of mystery. Because it's a little scary 
to step into the unknown. I mean, I promise you there's nothing in here other than the, orders, the pieces in our order of service. You just don't know when they're going to be. But, you know, the world is full of more confusing things than that. There's an idea in history and philosophy that modernism, that other child of the Enlightenment, disenchanted the world. That we used to live in a world that seemed magical. We didn't have explanations for things like, like a rainbow, for example. And when we did, we were literally disenchanted. And I know that right here, we are in a room full of people with a fabulous sense of wonder and discovery. And yet, if it's part of our culture, Unitarian Universalism and modernism and so on, we need to watch out for that. Oh, or have we grown disenchanted? Have we forgotten how magical and miraculous things are? If only because we will never comprehend them. There might be an explanation out there somewhere, but it won't come in our lifetimes or be comprehensible to human beings. So I've been thinking, too, a lot about the idea of re-enchantment, a uh, disappointing, disappointingly difficult book uh, by a uh, theologian mentor of mine, David Ray Griffin. Um, I've, I tried to read it during my sabbatical, and I'm going to try again. Um, <laughs> the title, though, the title was just so marvelous. It was called, if I can remember it correctly, something like Reenchantment Without Superstition. And the idea of, can we have a mature religion that takes into account all the things we've learned, all the things that reason and science and our own senses reveal to us, but still be enchanted. He says yes, so I'm going to figure out how. Or else I'll figure out another way. For me, one of those ways is art. We'll see. So I just want to close with one, uh, uh, the retelling of a story that Jane Dwinell told right here. Um, she is a minister, now retired, a friend of mine who gave the sermon at the installation service that formally uh, plugged me in and made me your minister. Amy is installed January 4th, 2004. Um, we'd actually been working together for some months at that time. But that installation is the time when we, we shared a covenant, we sang together, um, of what we hoped for, and Jane gave a sermon called Radical Hospitality. And in it, she told the story of, um, well, I'll give it to you in her words, because she told it well. The old Hebrew story about the monastery that had fallen on hard times. There were only a handful of elderly monks, and no young men wanted to join their ranks. One day, the abbot went to visit his old friend, the rabbi, to read scripture together and talk. The abbot poured his heart out to his friend, the rabbi, and spoke of the dying monastery. And the rabbi listened carefully. They sat in silence. They prayed together. And as they parted, the rabbi spoke. One of you is the Messiah. 
And the abbot wondered what he could possibly mean by that. Now, the abbot and rabbi both knew literally what he meant, so I'll explain if you don't know the Messiah. Messiah is the figure in both Judaism and Christianity who will usher in an era of goodwill. Some say when evil cannot happen, when everybody prospers, when the lion lies down with the lamb, in the words of Isaiah. In Christianity, the thought is that Jesus was the Messiah and will return. Jews say the Messiah has yet to come. Well, the Messiah is someone you look for and wait for and prepare for. So when the abbot returned to the monastery, he shared with the monks the rabbi's parting words. One of you is the Messiah. How could that be? Brother Eldred is so grumpy. And Brother Philip, well, he's pretty boring. Brother Thomas is a holy man. Maybe it's him. Or the abbot. He's the abbot after all. Then there's me. The novice monk might think, but, but, but what if it's me? Maybe it's me. Too much to think about. In prayer and in meditation, each monk considered the possibility that the Messiah was among them and in daily life began to treat one another better with respect and care because, well, maybe one of them was the Messiah. <laughs> And lo and behold, the place began to bloom, filled as it was with care and love and respect. People began to be attracted to the place, to come and picnic with their families or to stop by the chapel to pray. Young men began to ask to join the monks, and after a few years, the monastery was a joyful, light-filled place, providing sanctuary, hope, and love to many. Now, Obviously, Jane was telling us this story and the whole idea of radical hospitality to encourage us to be welcoming. And yes, we could describe the past 20 years as an opening of our hearts and our doors, a learning together of how to be more and more welcoming. It's been hard and interesting and full of disappointments and a spiritual journey complete with switchbacks and dead ends and moments of sheer delight. But also, this story and this journey are about mystery. They never know who the Messiah is. They never will know. We will never know. We will never know what there is to be discovered in one another. There is no end to discovery, as long as we don't slam a lid on the box and declare an end to it. And so Jane shared about her life as a minister, and before that, her life as a midwife, and what it was like to welcome a new person into this world, and how the parents and everybody have these dreams and hopes for this baby, Maybe the baby will be like this. Maybe they'll grow up to be like that. And she says, it's all a crapshoot. It's all a mystery. It's all a mystery. And that unknowing between any two people when they meet, before they shake hands or bump elbows, that is that marvelous time of unknowing where the really amazing things, everything else that is amazing, arises.